This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All this week, we're looking at how different counties are cracking down on illegal vacation rentals. We focus on the Garden Isle today. Kauai, along with other neighbor islands, has seen an increase in illegal rentals, exasperating a housing crunch. But Kauai officials believe that their partnership with a high-tech vacation rental enforcement firm has helped deter illegal operators from starting back up. The Conversation's Harrison Patino spoke with Kauai County Planning Director Kaina Ho on the department's ongoing efforts to contain illegal vacation rentals. We have procured a particular vendor by the name of Host Compliance that uses an array of different digital strategies and algorithms to monitor the World Wide Web and identify illegal vacation rental operators. The first time we met actually with Host Compliance was a few years back, and they had anticipated roughly 1,200 illegal vacation rentals, roughly 1,200 to 1,500 illegal vacation rentals operating on our island. It had been a few years since we first met with them, and we finally procured their services to help identify these illegal vacation rental operators. And after we procured the services, the numbers actually came back significantly lower than we had anticipated when we first signed the contract. The numbers we're getting from post compliance right now is, is roughly around two to 300 illegal vacation rentals operating on our island. And when I talked with the CEO, actually, and because I had grave concerns, I was fairly upset with them, given that the first numbers were 1,200 to 1,500, the CEO's response was, yeah, kind of. When we first talked, it was a few years ago. Since that time, the county of Kauai has been actually been fairly successful in a lot of our appeals. In fact, we had one appeal that was originally levied a $10,000 fine, and the hearings officer sided with the county of Kauai's enforcement team and actually put on place a $150,000 fine. And so, what well, at least Post compliance and others have been saying is that in response to us being able to prevail in a lot of these contested cases with substantial fines, a lot of those in the legal vacation rental industry are actually pulling out on their own accord. So right now, like I said, we're at about two to 300 illegal vacation rentals on Kauai. Interesting. Now, we're actually seeing a lot more different kinds of vacation rentals in terms of people renting out tents or renting out boutique camping experiences out of the back of an SUV. I don't want to say smarter, but are illegal operators getting more creative in terms of how they're employing these illegal vacation rentals? Yeah, so that's actually what the vast majority of the, you know, two to 300 advertisements that we're seeing that are, are being identified as, as illegal operations, the vast majority of them are actually now in that camper van and tent rental category as opposed to your, your typical Airbnb house or apartment rentals. Uh, and so we are looking at cracking down on those operations where appropriate. You can rent a car at you know your standard car rental company and use it to go around the island. And many of these many of these folks function that same manner. So we just make sure that these folks are are renting the cars from the appropriate area, be it a commercial zoning district or an industrial zoning district. If they're renting these cars out of a, out of a residential neighborhood on agricultural land, we do shut these operations down. And then where people are taking these camper vans is of particular concern to Kauai. If they're taking to designated camping areas that it is permissible, then we have no problem. But what we're finding in a lot of these scenarios is people are illegally trespassing on private property and essentially sending their the people that rent their vehicles onto these properties without the property owner's consent. And that is of particular concern, and, and we're trying to monitor and work with, with our parks division as well as our police department. And, and making sure that type of activity doesn't continue. On neighbor islands, we've even seen uh, vacation rentals being used on conservation lands. Is that a similar problem in Kauai? There is some of that issues, and we actually specifically have a task force that works in conjunction with our Department of Land and Natural Resources Office of Conservation and Coastal Lands, who does have the actual regulatory oversight of these lands, and so we do work with them to if we've identified any illegal operations on conservation land to get them that information um, so that they can use it in their enforcement efforts. Strictly speaking, illegal VR management is nothing new for the county. Policies have been in place since 2008, but because of a recent uptick in outer island TVR cases, has anything been changed policy-wide at the department level to combat the increase? Have there been more aggressive policies that have been put into place? As far as staffing and resources, we have put a lot more, a fair amount more of staff and resources behind monitoring the World Wide Web as well as procuring services like host compliance. But then, for the most part, when we get illegal operations in our fold and we identify them and put them on notice, for the most part, those individuals do come into compliance. It's, it's a handful of individuals that are operating illegally and once they're put on notice, continue to operate illegally. And the, these folks are entitled to their due process rights and 
it goes through appeals in the court system. But we kind of, we essentially have over the past few years held a line to say, yes, if you appeal, if you attorney up, our attorneys are going to meet you um, on that field as well and hold the line. And so holding that line has been a particular success in, in, in establishing a precedent of us maintaining a, a fine structure that other individuals have to adhere to as well. So that's one avenue. We recently were also granted the ability from the county council to levy. If you don't pay attention to fines and you don't want to, or you attempt to get around paying the fine and don't pay it, we also now have the authority to levy a lien on the property. And if a property owner owns their property outright uh, and they have no intention of selling it, a lien is, is a very little threat to them. All it does is it clouds title and disallows the sale of a property from happening. But a lot of these properties are held in by mortgage, and the banks will not generally allow for liens to take place on that property. So often banks will come in and foreclose on a property if the county has levied a lien on it. And so this has gotten a lot more attention from vacation rental owners that are under threat of being foreclosed if they continue to operate illegally. We've been seeing a decrease on Oahu for transient vacation rentals, but an increase on the neighbor islands. Where does Kauai stack up against the rest of the islands? Is it better or worse than the average? Given the numbers I have from host compliance, we are, we are seeing a diminishment in our illegal vacation rentals. However, we still are seeing increases happen and our visitor destination area. And our visitor destination here in Kauai is, the, is those tourist areas that were specifically set aside to have vacation rentals. So we do see vacation rental operations increasing in these visitor destination areas, but the county's position is it's the appropriate area and, and we're more than welcoming and accommodating to those operations in those specific areas. Switching gears just a little bit here, we have a lot of incoming fear here because of the coronavirus and the effects that that might have on our tourist industry statewide. Do you think that these uh, fears are going to bring usage down either for transient vacation rentals or permitted vacation rentals altogether? I would imagine so just given the overall concern that happens with travel and the potential virus being spread through either airplane travel or just, you know, in and out traffic. So I'm going to imagine, you know, over time that indeed it's going to have an effect both on legal as well as illegal operations here in Kauai and throughout the state. So, I mean, the fact still stands that people are mostly using these unlicensed TBRs because they're a whole lot cheaper than other alternatives. What would you say to the average tourist or consumer who's coming here and using the services of these unlicensed TBRs as an affordable alternative to high-cost hotels or lodging? The department understands that, that for many TVR operations, they are much more affordable than some of your standard uh, hotel accommodations. However, like I said earlier, we have a visitor destination area where legal vacation rentals are allowed to operate. Some of them, many of them are indeed at a lower price threshold than your standard resort fare. And we just ask you know, the consumer, the visitor, to adhere to those in the visitor destination area that are legally operating and to stay out of the illegal areas, to stay out of our agricultural lands in our residential neighborhoods. That was Kauai County Planning Director Kaina Hull and the Conversations Harrison Patino talking about ongoing efforts to crack down on illegal vacation rentals on the Garden Isle. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. The indictment of a Kauai councilman sent shockwaves across the state last week. Lawmaker, lawbreaker, it's the talk of the town. HBR's Casey Harlow was there when the indictments were handed down. Good morning, Casey. Morning, Catherine. How are you doing? Good. So this is, yeah, one of those stories you're going, what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it when the news broke last Thursday of uh, he was in a drug sweep and was arrested, we couldn't really believe it. I mean... 
this is someone who's also been in trouble with the law in recent months uh, as well. So, I mean, it kind of seemed like, wow, this couldn't get any more crazier for this one individual. More of the newspaper side of things, uh, he will be in court this afternoon for a detention hearing in Honolulu. Last week, he pled not guilty to the charges. He faces 10 felony charges. The more significant ones are drug trafficking, possession, and intent to distribute. And according to Kenji Price, U.S. attorney for the District of Hawaii, he was apparently the head of this drug ring uh, with the United Samoan Organization. And on top of those felony charges, uh, here are some other things that he was alleged to have done. In addition to running a drug trafficking organization and trying to help a fugitive obtain an unregistered firearm, Brune tried to evade law enforcement and obstruct justice. Notably, while trying to avoid detection, Brune disparaged police officers. For example, on October 18th of last year, Brune called a member of his drug trafficking organization and warned him, in substance and in part, not to go to Port Allen because there were, quote, undercover cars down there. A day later, Brune arranged to meet Umu, but told Umu that he went to a location called Salt Pond because there were, quote, cops in Hanapepe town. About a week and a half later, while arranging to meet a co-defendant, Brune told her in substance and in part, hang on a little while, cops galore over there. On yet another occasion, Brune supplied one of his drug dealers with methamphetamine, then told the drug dealer to lie to law enforcement after they seized it during a traffic stop. When Brune's co-conspirator called him and expressed concern that, in substance and in part, all of the, quote, stuff is in the bag in my backpack, Brune told the co-conspirator to lie to law enforcement about who owned the backpack. And that's just some of the things that uh, he's on top of the drug trafficking, possession and distribution, intent to distribute, that he's alleged to have done. And the feds wiretapped his cell phone, his office phone, even tracked his social media accounts. And uh, Kenji didn't want to say too much about the details of what the federal government has on him. But they know that he's been operating since June of last year. He may have been doing this even longer. And it's still an active investigation. So that all the details really haven't really come out. But I do have a 29-page indictment in front of me. And I, I'll tell you what, this is a page-turner. It could be just as good as a, a New York Times bestseller at this point. But just to kind of go over these uh, charges that he's facing, the more significant ones, he could face a max sentence of life in prison. And he faces quite a significant amount of uh, a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. So if he's found guilty on any of these things, he could have life in prison plus more. And uh, have you uh, had a chance at all to reach out to his attorney? I haven't reached out to his attorney. Our reporter, Ashley Mizuo, she was at the arraignment last Friday because I was on my flight heading back here. But Rustin Barbie, he is Councilmember Brune's attorney. He didn't want to comment at length about it. Uh, he says that the case is still premature. But obviously, this is the talk of the town in uh, Kauai. And I talked to several folks um, a lot of them didn't want to go on tape, but they would love to have to talk to me about this. Um, one individual that I met in a coffee shop, he said that he he felt a little betrayed. He felt very disappointed because Brune apparently ran on a campaign of forgiveness and second chances because Brune has had history with methamphetamine and was in rehab and had some trouble with the law before the October traffic stop incident, which apparently was connected to this investigation where he was pulled over by a police officer. And when the police officer told him to uh, get out of the car to search the vehicle, uh, Brune drove off and injured the officer. And while he was driving off, he threw out a pound of meth out of the car as well. So all that was part of the investigation, but he's had um, he's had issues in the past with uh, methamphetamine. One person that I actually uh, got to talk to and got on uh, record on tape was Joe Maurer. He works with at-risk youth, and he was uh, very disappointed as well with the news. And here's some of the things that he had to say. Um, it doesn't seem like he should be a sitting council member. Um, I would, I mean, can they, sus like, my question is, can they suspend him? Can they, until the investigation is complete 
because it doesn't seem appropriate for him to be on mm-hmm. the board of you know council members at, at this point in time given the information that has been reported this is a problem like mm-hmm. this can't happen like quite has a big enough drug problem and something has to be done about it our council members are the people we elect to like help curtail those things mm-hmm. you know so it, you know like i said it was shocking um angering for me um because i I, I literally work with these youth that have been affected by methamphetamine. You could probably, in a matter of a few blocks and conversations, figure out where you could get, where you can get it. And when I drive around these around these streets, especially here in La Huey, I see a lot of our kids, like former clients, and I know that they've been affected by this drug. And when I see them walking around here, it's like my heart sinks because it's like, well, is that why they're walking around? And you know these streets right now—is that what they're looking for? Um, so that you know, it's, it's troubling um, and something that needs to be addressed. So that last soundbite, he was kind of describing the issue, the larger issue of meth in Kauai. Don't really think of Kauai as a place where meth is like a surface problem, but it is running rampant there apparently. And also at the beginning where Joe said that he was disappointed that, you know, he's still a sitting council member. That's because in the county uh, charter, according to Council Chair Kaneshiro, a council member can still hold his position as long as he's not found guilty, convicted of a crime, or if he resigns. We don't know if he is going to resign or not during this time, but unless until he is convicted of a crime, he cannot ousted, I guess. Right, and I have seen some, I think, letters to the editor where people are calling on him to step down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Any other sense from the community? It was all pretty much the same. There was just a lot of shock and surprise that, you know, something like this happened on Kauai, and especially to a council member. Some think that it's corruption at its finest, but um, there is no suggestion, at least from the U.S. Attorney's Office, that there is more to this. I mean, again, this is an active investigation, so there could be more to this. But as far as we know right now, uh, we can't say for sure. Okay, we'll just see how this plays out. Casey Harlow, thank you so much. Thanks. We have been talking to HPR's Casey Harlow, who was on Kauai as the U.S. attorney and federal authorities uh, handed down the indictments of Councilman Arthur Brune. delegates are up for grabs on Super Tuesday. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me and listeners from around the country for a national call-in special on the day that could determine whether any candidate can get a majority before the convention. The time to listen and participate is now. Call in with your thoughts on the candidates and the state of our country. America, are we ready? Starting this afternoon at 2. In our reality check segment with Honolulu Civil Beat, we take another look at a controversy simmering out on Oahu's North Shore, in particular, Dillingham Field and the future of the General Aviation Facility. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us this morning. Hi there. Hey, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so lots of attention recently on Dillingham Field. Right. So today I, I have a story up on Civil Beat that looks at some of the glider operations, and uh, this did come out of. Uh, last month's crash. Uh, so there are there are three glider operations uh, that work out of Dillingham Airfield, uh, Honolulu Soaring Club, Acroflight International, and Hawaii Glider and Sailplane Academy. Um, the single-engine Cessna that that crashed last month that was actually a tow plane uh, that was owned by Honolulu Soaring Club. You know, there were two veteran pilots on board. They're still trying to determine uh, what happened in that crash. Uh, but just kind of in the course of looking at this, it came up that um, these these uh, companies 
are not regulated in the same way that helicopter and airplane tours are are regulated by the FAA. And, you know, gliders are engineless. You know, they just they glide on the wind. Uh, they're not engine powered. However, they do use uh, at least a lot of these flights do use uh, and rely on airplanes, engine powered airplanes in order to get airborne, to get aloft. They basically tow them up off the runway. So now the FAA is actually taking a closer look at these operations to see whether the glider scenic tours where people are, are paying you know, for commercial tours, uh, whether those particular flights should in fact be regulated in the same way as helicopters and a- airplane tours uh, because they do in fact rely on engine powered airplanes to get in the air. Yeah, that's an interesting oversight, it seems. I'm, but in the case of the, the Cessna that crashed recently, now they weren't in the process of towing a glider at the time, right, or doing an air that, tour. That is a very key uh, detail to, to include here is that um, uh, the, one of the pilots, uh, Rick Rogers, you know, beloved uh, community member up on the North Shore, uh, was completing along with um, – uh, it's Uncle Billy Anoka from Kauai. You know, they were up there, and, and uh, Rick, as I understand it, talking to operators up there, was completing uh, his basically the last phase of his training so that he could, in fact, uh, tow these gliders as a solo pilot in the Cessna owned by Honolulu Soaring Club. He was just getting training in that that model. Uh, so yeah, it was not it, it was not towing a glider. At the time, and it was not conducting an air tour. However, this is the tow plane that Honolulu Soaring Club would use to get its gliders up in the air. Right, and and I know they're looking at you know uh, different things, including you know whether there was a malfunction of the plane, and I, I'm not really sure what the weather conditions were like, you know, at that time. But right. all that they're that looking at. Yeah, so the NTSB is still investigating. Uh, I believe I'm not sure if they put out their preliminary report yet, but they put out a preliminary, and then you know you wait many months, more than a year, um, for the the final determination to come out. What the um, you know what the the operators I, I did have a, a chance to talk to some of the the glider operators up there. What they said is you know in those situations there's a cable that that uh, connects the, 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 the plane to the glider. And if there is any sort of trouble on either end, uh, both the glider and the plane do have a, a switch basically to, to disconnect. Uh, so, in a, you know, and they can basically, a glider has a lot more flexibility and can apparently land a lot more easily. They're saying in a situation like that, it's not like the, the plane would by any means take down the glider with it. So in the case of, of uh, these uh, aircraft, though, with the rules, so is the, the language in the law just kind of silent as to what's regulated? Yeah, what, what it is is it mentions helicopters and airplanes. It does not mention gliders. So what the FAA, and I'm assuming as lawyers, would be looking at is what happens when you have a glider that is attached to an, to an airplane and, and uses it. And it's also worth noting not all the operations up there actually rely on airplanes to get aloft. If you go on YouTube, you can I, I would recommend you check out winch, you know, search winch tow. Uh, there are some crazy ways that these, these contraptions that they can use to get the, the, uh, the planes aloft. So it's not all the, the operators that rely on, on engine-powered airplanes. And so what does the, the data show as far as just accidents out there? Yeah, so NTSB has uh, recorded in its database 35 accidents uh, going all the way back to 1967. Um, five of those were were fatal. This is for uh, Hawaii, I should should note. And based on that, those database records, only one was was uh, classified as sightseeing. The others were just personal use of gliders. So really, you know, compared to some of the other high-profile crashes with a lot of fatalities, you're, you're not seeing that same thing on the gliders. It's just we happen to have this crash, and there does happen to be uh, kind of an interesting thing where they're not covered in the same way as the FAA, right? As, then, as the other uh, ones, yeah. Yeah, and there is also the, the concern about the future since the state wants to uh, – essentially step away from that lease with the military. But, uh, yeah, all interesting developments. So thanks so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That was uh, reporter Marcel Henre with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to read the entire story.
Aloha, I'm Benny Rietfeld from Honolulu, Hawaii, and you're listening to The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Not everyone is in a position to buy a home, but we all need a place to live. The demand for rentals is an issue across the state. Today we look at a new project, a mix of affordable and market units, starting to take shape out on Oahu's west side. It's called The Element. John Wallenstrom of Alika'i Development stopped by yesterday afternoon to talk with us. Well, we're excited. The Element is a 318-unit, largely market-rate rental apartment, and that's that's unfortunately unusual for our state. We should be building more rental. We should be building more affordable housing of all kinds, but this will be rented to local people. They are apartments. Um, We've been working at it for a couple of years. Really blessed to be working with D.R. Horton at Ho'opili, which is a wonderful uh, development. I know it it had some controversy going forward, but it's housing a lot of people and doing a great thing, and we're just happy to be a part of that fabric that's being created. So now this particular development, it's then on the rail line? Yeah, yeah, this is transit-oriented development in every sense of the word. We are the closest site to the UH West Oahu rail stop, right across the street from UH West Oahu. So our residents are looking, you know, have this wonderful life where they can live in our homes, get on rail, avoid the drive, um, help, you know, our society. These are all tax-paying individuals here in the this, this state of Hawaii. Okay, so you've broken ground. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's the timetable? We'll be leasing this summer. So July, August, we'll be leasing and have occupants and a super neat clubhouse up and running for people to come and take a look at and look at the homes that we'll be delivering. Okay, so the, the, the models will be ready. Yeah, models will be ready. The clubhouse will be ready. We've got this neat corner location where we're looking forward to putting a restaurant in or a little cafe would be more apropos. But it'll it'll be fun. It'll be a neat place to live, really fun place for, for local folks to come and live. Okay, so I'm sure everybody's interested. All right, what kind of rent will you be charging? Yeah, so, well, and, and there, there's two answers to that. The first answer is 20% of our units will be affordable through a a state, I'm sorry, actually a city-administered program, and those rents today are about $1,800 for one bedroom. Um, the rest of the homes are market rate, so they'll move with the market. Uh, I looked briefly today, and um, kind of a home equivalent in, um, in the general market area is about 2300 2400 so that's what it would take to, to lease the medium-sized units that we'll be leasing. Okay, so it's one, two, and three-bedroom? One, two, and three-bedroom, yeah. Nice, big, nice, nice-sized units. They'll live really well. Great roommate units. So those oftentimes are good for students. So the UH West Oahu folks might want to double up, and they'll, they'll work well, well for that. But they'll also be terrific for families, for extended families. Yeah, it's neat. We really tried to try to plan these things with Hawaii in mind, kind of the way that, that people live and the way that, and where that market is. Will there be any additional fees? I mean, you, usually when you buy into a unit, you know, there's maintenance fees. So how, how does that work? Will that, the common area maintenance, yeah, no, does that get worked into the price? There or? isn't. There isn't. So unlike a condo where you'd buy that, that condo and then usually there's a condominium association fee in addition that keeps up, that does the upkeep and those sorts of things. With the rental, uh, there really aren't any. The qualifications to that is if you wanted to rent extra storage, that would be, we'd have a storage unit that you might want to rent, and that would be a little bit extra. And there are other services, concierge services or things like that, that you might want to uh, sign up for. But, you know, you don't have to. It's not really a part of it. Really, the the way the apartment works best is to keep it pretty simple. The rent is the rent, and people pay that rent and just understand that. Pet-friendly? Yeah, very pet-friendly. And there would be a fee associated with pets, so you've, there, okay. there is a fee associated with that. But uh, we don't need to because, in this case, D.R. Horton has planned a dog park in, the, in close adjacency. Um, so, you know, but we are very pet-friendly and accepting and accommodating. Okay, so what do people need to know, then, if they're interested in uh, filling out an application uh, come June? Yeah, I think watch the website. It's, it's theelementwestoahu.com, but just pay attention to the website. It's still uh, in process right now. It's early, so don't don't come out yet, but we would love to have you interested and come and look at the website and fill out an application. Now, 
you and I have talked about many different projects. Yes. You know, you, you've been involved with, with things in, in Kaka'ako um, yeah. before. But how are you able to make this work as a rental? Because we often hear, you know, developers say, oh, gosh, it's really hard to, you know, get a decent profit margin, you know. Yeah. So how are we making this work? Um, I think we have, so Kayan Pea, my co-founder, and I have done this before, right? We did a, a, a project called Kapale Loss, which is 500 units, and kind of proved to the market and proved to our investors that it was a good business. So the difference between, a, say, a condo or lots of other forms of real estate and an apartment is a condominium can be less speculative. So you'll hear about developers pre-selling that condo. So they pre-sell, and that proves to your investors that it works. Uh, with an apartment, there's no pre-leasing in an apartment. You just need to know that that market exists and can be uh, satisfied. So I think we proved that with Kapolei Lofts. There was a market. It was a remarkable success. We have a Fortune 250 uh, partner with us, so really good access to capital. And, you know, we're not rocket scientists. It's not that It's not that fancy. It's just, I guess we've done it once and we're able to do it again. Yeah, it. it I mean, it, it's not a mystery. You know, people yeah. need a place to yeah. stay. I yeah. mean, w yeah. you know, we always hear about how we're woefully behind in building units. Yeah, yeah. Well, it helps to have done it. And um, Kayanne and I uh, did the military housing, which honestly is a very big apartment project. We did Kapolei Loss, which is another no qualifications apartment project. My career prior to moving here about 15 years ago was doing apartments on the mainland. So, um, you know, my, my second job after being a paper boy was being an apartment developer and being a little facetious. But we've just been doing it for a while and, and understand that market well and can deliver a project that is efficient. If you don't understand how that apartment will operate, it shouldn't probably be built. And we understand how it should be operated. Okay, so when do you hope uh, that... Uh folks can actually move in there? When will it be complete? We will, so when we talk about July, August, July, August will be opening. I think it's, you know, so that's, circle those dates in the calendar. You know, it's construction, so it doesn't always happen exactly as you want, but our construction team assures us, I'm being a facetious again, but assures us that it will deliver on time and we're going to hold them to it. And we have a wonderful construction team, so I'm, I'm happy to be working with them. So I guess really the the big selling point would be, you know, rail, right? I mean, if rail uh, we're, is we're around the corner, that this would be just a wonderful opportunity to, for, for folks to take advantage of it. Yeah, this will be neat. This is going to be neat. This is, this is what, uh, where rail works well there's housing and close proximity to those rail stops, and more so than any other type of use, right? Because those people get on that rail and they recreate, they shop, they visit friends, they do whatever they do, but it's really the housing that drives that. So, or, or and it could be jobs, you know, it could also be office buildings, but those are kind of the two big rail drivers. Uh, and so we're, we're, these people will really, it's gonna be a neat life. You don't, you can put that car away um, you know, you still can't get to the beach, so people generally still, you know, want that car to go to the North Shore, or, um, wherever. Um, but most of the daily activity can be done via rail, and that's a nice way to live. And so, uh, uh, tell us about uh, any green elements. That you yeah, I'm, oh, the... I'm so glad you asked. I can't believe I didn't mention that. This this will be a net zero community, so we will generate as much electricity as our residents use. Um, so at the scale, at 318 units, um, this will be one of the biggest. I can't find many examples of a net zero community any place in the country or world that's bigger, and certainly not one that, that is going forward without subsidy. Um, so we really, we have no, there is no state subsidy of any kind in this project. So I, I guess there are tax credits associated with the PV, so I shouldn't say that. Um, but we're just using programs that exist, so it's it's neat. There's no legislative action, nothing nothing like that. Any opportunity for uh, plugging in EVs, electric cars? Yeah, yeah, we'll certainly do that as well. We'll certainly do that. that in fact, that's a that's a requirement under some of the building codes. So uh, we'll meet that. We did that at Kapolei Lofts, and I do need to say, 
you know, I think Cayenne and I always want to be forward-leaning and kind of out there in front of, of things. We put a lot of EV chargers in Kapolei lofts that weren't used. So, you know, it's not... Um, you don't want to do that. We have a housing problem, and, you know, the more that you just kind of throw at requirements that you throw at housing makes it more difficult. We already have, you know, we, we suffer that high cost of living, which we all know, um, so don't accentuate that. Uh, but we will do EV, We just and we will meet the code requirements, which I think are, you know, which is fine. So what do you do in a case at couple of lofts where... The chargers sit unused. You pull the chargers out. No, you just space? park a, a a gas a gas vehicle there, which is silly, right? We shouldn't be doing that. So, okay. Yeah. But just but at least it the capacity is there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I available. mean, I think ultimately there's no huge regret. I think it's a little. It's just an, it's an interesting cautionary uh, tale. You know, it's something that I think is good. And again, Cayenne, this will be our 817th uh, rental unit that we will have delivered in this market, which is a lot. Um, so we, we kind of understand this program pretty well. And, you know, it's good to take those lessons and, any, and understand them. Any thoughts of uh, maybe trying this on the neighbor islands? Yeah, I think that I think that's an it's interesting. I mean, quite honestly, we've looked at all of the neighbor islands uh, and you need a robust economy. So not to say that the neighbor islands don't have it and they have a lot of the same problems. Their cost their costs are sometimes just a smidgen higher than ours here on Oahu and the rents are a smidgen lower. It's already kind of tough to figure out. So um I do think there's opportunity. I don't want to be a, a wet blanket on that, but um but it's it's tricky. Oahu quite honestly works a little bit better. And then the units for the element, are they powered by a solar farm, a utility-scale solar farm, or are these uh, It'll on be the rooftop? Roof, rooftop and carports. And we will be grid-connected, so there'll be a backup. The back, If you do the math every month, it'll be zero. Like We'll use zero electricity, but during the date, we'll have batteries. So during the daytime hours uh, when our residents are working or otherwise, and there's a lot of sun, um, we'll be feeding the battery. In the evenings when they come home, we may, we'll certainly be using the electricity from the battery and maybe using the HECO grid as well. But, you know, at, at the end of each month, we hope it will be zero. It's a net zero community is our intention. That was John Wallenstrom of Alika'i Development talking about the element, the newest rental project springing up near the University of Hawaii's West Oahu campus. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. On this week's Stargazer, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share how our solar family has grown with a new moon in the sky. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, Stargazers, Venus continues to grace us with its extraordinarily bright presence in our evening sky, till it will set in the west at around 9.30. The moon this week is approaching its first quarter phase, and as such, it will make the perfect companion to an evening stargazing. And this week, you are, speaking of the moon, talking about our new moon, is it? Indeed. It appears as though the small solar family of the Earth and moon has grown somewhat over the past few weeks, with the Earth gaining another moon, albeit a very small one. An asteroid known as 2020 CD3 has been temporarily pulled into a trailing orbit around the Earth, where it will stay till around April. 
The asteroid, which is about the size of a car, was spotted by the Catalina Sky Survey based out of Arizona. And over the next couple of months, astronomers from around the world will be able to study this celestial visitor. And how does something like this happen? Well, the Earth orbits the Sun along with hundreds of thousands of asteroids. Some of them are called near-Earth objects, or NEOs for short. Occasionally, one of these crosses paths with our planet and ends up hitching a gravitational ride. And I'm guessing from your upbeat tone that this does not pose any threat to the planet. <laughs> No, not at all. At least not during this encounter. 2020 CD3 will head off on its own journey around the sun in a couple of months and may not encounter the Earth for years to come. In fact, it is suspected that the Earth has had a previous encounter with this asteroid around three years ago. And from the size of it, it doesn't sound like it could be a whole lot of danger, probably would burn up on its way in or... Exactly. Asteroids like this are no danger to civilization, and in fact, the Earth is under constant bombardment by solar system debris on a constant basis, some of which gives rise to our beautiful meteor showers that we see throughout the year. So nothing really to do except sit back and enjoy the show. And we've got to be thankful for the atmosphere, huh? Or we'd have refrigerator-sized objects just careening <laughs> into the planet. It would also be very cold here. <laughs> right. Good point. It's Christopher Phillips and another fun stargazer. Thanks. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the East Kapolei Middle School, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Out in a cemetery in Nebraska yesterday, the family of Pearl Harbor veteran Don Stratton laid him to rest in a family plot. He was just one of three remaining veterans of the battleship Arizona. Stratton and his surviving shipmates are opting to be buried with family. Just a few months ago, the National Park Service and the Navy took part in what many thought would be the last internment of a veteran on the sunken memorial. But following that event, another family reached out to inquire about another internment. Uh, the chief historian of Pearl Harbor's Memorial Park, Dan Martinez, was surprised when Rachel Yasavovich, the daughter of veteran and Navy sailor Harvey Milhorn, contacted him about her father's wish to be interred with the men who died on December 7th. The last interment was in December, and we thought that was the last one. I was pretty confirmed because the last three Arizona survivors have decided that's not for them. And so Lauren Bruner, when he went back to the ship, uh, we were pretty f convinced. I said at the end of the ceremony, well, maybe, you know, this is the last one. And I did that kind of just to lighten it, but I really thought it was the last one. And I got a call because there was so much TV coverage and podcasts and radio. It's amazing communication today. And so it's all over the place. And she saw it. And she remembered that she had seen a paper, uh, found it, about internment, and really couldn't figure it out, but it was, it was uh, dated 1994. Well, that struck home because the form she sent me, a copy of it, when I got it in the email, I just was like, oh my God. I had made up that form because we, at 1994 was a transition between the Navy and the Park Service to partner because we were in charge of the memorial and we also did the diving on the ship that it was felt by Jim Taylor at the time who was a wonderful guy and he did the ash spreading and and interments previously and he was such a generous fellow and working with him and Agnes Tayan who recently retired we were able to figure out how we would do these interments. And so I would get the paperwork, and once the paperwork, which was a DD-214, a birth certificate, uh, a death certificate, and having those papers, uh, work with the family then and turn those over to the Navy so that they could go through the process of then securing a military funeral, which is, that's what an interment is. What's unique about that is this is the only place in America this takes place on a ship. 
And so when we started in 1994 to do that, this paper was, I was working with Jim and he said, look, you should, you need to have your paperwork and stationery. Here's what we do. And I just copied that. And so when I saw that, the paperwork not only was there, but it had the superintendent's signature, Don McGee, who I think currently lives, lives in Mililani. And, and that was the first paperwork I ever filled out on this. And so it lay dormant in a box. And I've got to get more details from Rachel, but she discovered it and, and she knew about it. It's all this coverage said, well, maybe I'll call them and tell them. And I got this communication and followed up with her. And indeed, yeah, we've pulled all the paperwork, you know, turning over to the Navy. And we're moving forward to have it sometime in June. So you folks had given permission for him to be interred. And so and they never acted on it. Or, or I, I, what I'm trying to figure out, and I think this is that the wife passed away and this just laid in a box. And when he passed away, they had their ashes and they were in a columbarium together. And the daughter finds it. And uh, there we are. The fact that he wanted to go back to the ship is, was important to the daughter, who is uh, very straightforward, uh, typical of an engineer, wonderful person, but, you know, uh, there's a certain precision to her communications, and I love it, and so it's succinct, and we, we, we're moving along and planning it. And so uh, working now with the Navy, I'll be meeting with Jim Newman, and we'll be uh, getting the parts together and uh, setting the actually date and we do these now late in the afternoon and there's a certain mood to it and uh, and uh, the last one that uh, that went in uh, Lauren Bruner we actually had a hard hat diver which the helmet was used in the salvage of the USS Oklahoma perhaps the Arizona but those hard hat divers and the People have seen the pictures underwater. Yes, They're stunning just amazing. Stunning. And so um, we're thinking of doing something special for this one, too. It'll be, I, I, I think, the last one. A date in June. A date in June. And uh, early June is what the, the, the date is, a uh, day, uh, at least the week, and we'll see for the date. We're, we're kind of polishing off some of those things right now. And, and usually we get the planning stirs up about three months out and we're, get, we're, we're headed towards that pretty soon. But it was just interesting that, you know, December 7th came and went and then 2020 comes around and you have this request yeah. and a, a daughter's desire to honor her father's wishes. Yeah. It, and it's, it's so commendable that she pursued this thing. And it, and it stirred her interest because of, of all the coverage uh, that the press gave it. And it was incredible coverage. And we had, you know, we had a lot of people that, the Callisons in particular, who were the caretakers. We had a, it, it, the thing is, every one of these that I've done, starting in 94, has a different story. And I, I think that what I, I, I should go back and do is is start writing about it because that's part of history that both Jim Newman and, and unfortunately Jim Taylor passed away. But those are the stories, the intimate stories that we share because we make contact with the families. They get to know them. They become part of the Arizona family. It's an extension. I don't think that most people know. We try to t stay in communication with each other. And the Callisons in particular were very special because they were just friends that took care of Lauren Bruner's, exercised his will, uh, you know, took care of him when he was ill. They were wonderful people. And, and the, the brother came who was, uh, you know, um, a bit on the outside of that family, but still there. And, and, uh, and we're able to pull that off. It was a delicate one. Someday I'll be able to write about all the delicacies of that. Yeah. But um, there was some tension there that, that we had to deal with, and we tried to negotiate it as best we could. I think we were able to do that. Uh, I think that the families were satisfied that, that they were part of it and, and not excluded in any way, and that's always when there's a, 
a little bit of difference in how things should right. be done. You have to navigate that. But you honor their memory, and you do it the best way you can, and right. you keep the history, you keep those stories. Right, and it's so great that we have a partner like the Navy. It's really, you know, when you think about it, the Park Service, as guardians of the memorial and its history and, and providing that visit, uh, the Navy has a whole different side of them. They have their traditions and they have their history. And, and, you know, it was so great to have the Admiral there and to have the Secretary of Interior there and all the officials there who witnessed something so unique that I guarantee you for the rest of their life they'll know that they went to something so unique in American culture and history and, of course, in naval tradition. That was Pearl Harbor historian Dan Martinez. He is talking with family of Seaman First Class Harvey Hollis Milhorn about a planned internment on the Arizona Memorial this summer, quite possibly the very last. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Friends of the Waikiki Aquarium's Distinguished Lecture Series. Dr. Camilo Mora discusses how climate change impacts are still fixable March 10th at Tenney Theater, fowaquarium.org. South Korea moved quickly to respond to the coronavirus outbreak. We approved the diagnostic kit within a few days. Within a few days. Now South Korea has ramped up its testing. 3,000 patients a day. I don't know if the United States can do that. What the U.S. might learn from South Korea's response, the coronavirus and South Korea on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. Well, that wraps it up for us. Up tomorrow, we circle back to the Valley Isle as we continue to look at the crackdown on illegal vacation rentals across the islands. Where do you stand on this issue? Feel strongly one way or the other? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us. We are on Twitter at HI Conversation and Facebook at The Conversation HPR. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.